Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio National Women's Current Affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. But I think what really is important that we come together as a community, um, not physically, but uh, in terms of socially and finding that um, solidarity, I think, that people are talking about supporting each other. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past, present and becoming, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. Women on the Line Hope you're keeping well out there. It's a strange time at the moment, a time to stick together while doing our best to physically stay apart. This week on the program, we speak with epidemiologist Dr Mary Scheel about the public health implications of COVID-19 and the best things that we can be doing to work towards solidarity in community and global health at this time. We also hear from Sally McManus, Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, on the impact of the pandemic on casual workers and unemployed people and the push to support those in insecure work. I'm Dr Mary Scheel. I'm an immunologist, microbiologist, I'm turned epidemiologist working at the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health at the Australian National University. Um, and my main area of interest is epidemic prone diseases such as COVID-19, um, vaccine preventable diseases and public health emergencies, especially in the context of lower middle income countries. Thanks so much for joining us today. It would be great to talk about what epidemiologists look at to determine the spread of an illness like COVID-19. Like, What are some of the factors that you consider? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I think in a way it's the first time that people probably know what an epidemiologist does, uh, which is really fantastic. But um, it's a branch of health and medicine which helps you understand the determinants of health at a population level. So that's how we define epidemiology. So we look at distribution patterns and determinants of health and disease conditions in the population. And it really is, one could say it's a cornerstone of public health because unless you know what is out there, you can't really change um, what we do about the particular condition. So that's really in the broad definition way that you see. But what epidemiologists do or what um, in the field is really look at, collect the data at a population level to understand what the disease trends are. So in the context of um, COVID-19, we would um, look at the number of cases that are in the community. So you want to look at the number of cases that are being reported. Is that an accurate count? What might be the factors that are influencing the presentation of these cases, understanding how the disease is spreading? Because with that you can then design interventions effectively. So it's a combination of things, but essentially it's all about the disease transmission, how it's spreading and how that information can then be used for further prevention and control of the disease as well. And in terms of the spread of COVID-19 and looking at strategies for controlling it, what is specific about COVID-19? What makes it different? Yeah, so there's a few things. Um, firstly, it's a new disease. We haven't seen the cause of COVID-19. It's caused by um, a coronavirus um, called the SARS-CoV-2, um, which we haven't seen before. It's a novel coronavirus. Coronavirus um, exists 
I guess they circulate in lots of animal species normally. A lot of animal species would have, and occasionally what we've seen is some species of coronavirus would, will evolve and jump from animals to humans, which is what we've seen with this particular one. And they can, they can cause um, diseases in humans. And we've seen a few different coronavirus outbreaks before. So the SARS in 2003, MERS outbreak, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome that people may have heard about, they were caused by coronaviruses. But what we haven't seen is something like this before, like what we are seeing with the COVID-19. It's the first time we've seen a coronavirus spread, be so contagious and spread so rapidly, leading to a pandemic across so many countries in the world. So that's really, from the epidemiology point of view, that's really what's quite different is that it's um, quite contagious, it's very contagious and it's transmissible, So, which means that it spreads Person to person, we can see we're seeing sustained transmission between people, um, which makes it difficult to control. Um, it is a respiratory disease virus, so like the other coronaviruses like SARS, MERS, um, influenza virus um, that we see, the seasonal influenza, similar to that, this is also a respiratory disease, but it is different to influenza in the way that it. Um, is we're seeing a higher, we think it's a higher mortality rate. Again, we are three months out of the outbreak, so more and more data will become available. Um, it also has, it infects more people. We call this concept called reproduction number. So for every one case, um, COVID-19 has a potential to infect another two, two and a half people compared to influenza, which is lower. Um, as well as the fact we call something called doubling time. So how quickly does infection number double or a new transmission chain, so to speak, in epidemiology language, might establish itself. And what we're seeing is, again, it's about perhaps uh, the evidence is evolving around this, but we think at the moment it might be around five. Um, again, we're learning a lot more. It's a new disease, so the world is learning. We're all learning every day, and there's new evidence every day. What is the best scientific thinking about what to do to reduce the spread of COVID-19, and how is that matching up with the government's current advice? Yeah, look, I think um, it's, it's really tricky to contain viruses like this. They're highly infectious and transmissible. Um, but what we do know is that a lot of things can help slow the spread. There are factors that will contribute, and... Um, the community first. I want to talk about the community first. And I think we all as individuals have a huge role to play in control of the outbreak. So we know with respiratory diseases, um, and especially such as this one, which spreads um, the transmission pathway is person to person is through either um, droplets, so by coughing or sneezing, so direct contact with a person that way, or if you are um, so using cough etiquette for that. Um, and um, if you are using a tissue, ensuring that you discard the tissue immediately. So general hygiene measures that we talk about in every influenza season, essentially, a seasonal influenza season, and also washing your hands constantly because what we know is every time you um, cough or touch something, your hands can carry the virus. So we know that this virus also spreads um, by contact. So um, if a person may have sneezed on a surface and they didn't clean it or then um, if it's not disinfected then we know the virus is possibly can survive for a few hours we still are learning how long it can survive but we think it can survive for a few hours so it's really important to disinfect the surface 
but also for people to constantly be washing their hands because when you touch that surface and you then touch your face or you eat something, you have the potential to spread it. So washing hands is really important. Disinfecting surfaces if you think you're infected. Um, but yeah, washing hands, cuff etiquette, ensuring that um, if you are you sneezing, coughing, then staying at home. If you're presenting with symptoms, that's another thing is to ensure um, that you are staying at home and seeking advice from your local GP or health authority. So um, there is a case definition for COVID-19, but as I said earlier, we're also going to start seeing more and more increase in other respiratory infections because it is winter. So those are things that community can do from an individual perspective, but also um, avoiding large gatherings. So we've been t- listening a lot about physical distancing or social distancing. And again, the idea is around reducing the number of interactions you might have with the community in general. So when we again have, if you attend a mass gathering and if you're potentially infected or another person is infected, you could spread the virus to a lot more people, which can then um, lead to a lot more infections because that person who's come in contact with you might go out into the wider community and spread it to others. So that's why um, at this point of time, mass gatherings, are being discouraged because it poses the risk of spreading the infection faster. Women on the line. So again, avoiding, um, I think um, we're not in complete lockdown and it's probably not the best way at the moment. It will depend on the scenario and how we progress. But I think um, minimizing large gatherings, minimizing social contact or physical contact with a lot of people, but still, I guess, being socially connected with your family and friends is going to be really important. But I think minimizing physical contact is really important. So that's from a community perspective. And then there's the public health response, which comes from um, the health authority side. So from a public health side of things, you look at uh, the main cornerstone at the moment that we're thinking about is public health surveillance. So the idea being that the faster you detect a case and isolate them, and manage their contact, then the faster your response can be. So the containment measures can be really quite um, strong from that perspective. So the idea is to detect, isolate, treat, follow up contact, um, if that makes sense. So that's what we're really, from a public health perspective, that's really what the idea of containment is, that the more you detect, the more you can treat, and isolate the person and minimize the spread to their contacts and then um, avoid um, new transmission chains. Um, And of course, the faster we can detect and milder cases, it also means that you are then um, slowing down the spread because what we think is going to happen is as the virus spreads into the community, we're going to see more elderly people get affected. What we've seen so far from countries like China and Korea and Italy, where they've had a large number of cases, is that um, the elderly and people with underlying um, conditions, health conditions, comorbidities, um, are the ones who tend to get more severe disease. And what we want to make sure is that our health system, um, hospitals, GP practices, have enough capacity to provide clinical care to these vulnerable populations. So slowing down the spread of the virus to enable our hospital system to keep up, essentially, and provide the deeper level of care to those who need it. Absolutely. So you want to reduce the general illness in the community as well. As much as we want, we want to reduce 
um, community-wide transmission and contain it and make sure no one gets sick. So the ultimate goal, the dream goal, would be to have no spread at all. But we know that that's a difficult um, thing to do. Stopping the spread of this virus is almost impossible because of the nature of the virus. But what we can do is slow the spread make sure that people, if they are getting sick, they get mild disease, but then the ones who are at highest risk, if they get severe disease, they are able to seek clinical care on time and get the best care they can get. You mentioned uh, that um, complete isolation uh, of everyone might not be the best thing at the moment. So what's wrong with just asking everybody to stay home? So you mean like a complete lockdown of the city completely? Yeah, I think, look, it's a tricky situation, and I think we're all learning, and I understand that there are different schools of thought, but there's a few factors to think about. First, we don't know how long this outbreak is going to last, and we have to let the outbreak take its course in the epidemiology. So by shutting down things at the moment completely, how and when we open becomes really challenging because you then are reintroducing the virus into the community again, and it could again lead to a resurgence. So minimizing the spread while it's, and flattening the curve that you're hearing about, while it seems like it's prolonging the outbreak, you are actually ensuring that you see less of a severe impact on people. Whereas if you shut down completely now, and then you have a few cases who are infected or one person comes in from somewhere else, the time duration becomes really tricky because we won't be able to eradicate that virus. And then you're back at the same point. On It gets reintroduced into society or into the community and it poses the risk of resurgence and getting another peak. So it's really quite difficult. So we've seen that in China, for example, in Hubei province where they did have a lockdown. Um, they've had to be very careful about um, how that open and remove the lockdown because it poses the risk that that will then result in more number of cases in the surrounding regions unless you can ensure that your exit screening, your tests, etc. works. So it becomes a really tricky balance from an epidemiological point of view as well. And of course, the societal and economic impacts of a complete lockdown can be quite severe. And so that, again, is a huge consideration. And we are not 100% sure about how long this outbreak will take. So I think because we're all learning, it's, it's not as straightforward to say, let's just all stay home and have a complete lockdown because there's um, societal and economic impact to consider as well. So I think it's a fine balance. And I think we are all learning. I think health authorities are learning. We are learning as epidemiologists. The world is learning. And I think I think the best thing we can do is learn from countries that are doing well, um, identify what didn't work in countries where systems have been flooded, and how can we adapt that to the Australian context, and what can we do um, better from our own previous week's response or previous month's response. It's an iterative process, and we have to adapt based on the evidence that we are getting. But it's a rapidly evolving situation, so it is really difficult. So we're nearly out of time today, Mary, but um, in the coming months, what can people expect? Uh, are there any historical precedents or other situations that come to mind as relevant to where we're at? Um, look, we haven't seen a pandemic before um, due to coronavirus. Um, I, many of the people today would not have seen the 1918 um, Spanish flu pandemic, which is what often people talk about because that was the big pandemic 
that effect in much of the world the same way. But I think it's possible that we will see cases increase in Australia. It's highly likely. It's highly possible that we will see cases increase all over the world. Um, many countries with weaker health systems are likely to get affected, and I'm personally very worried about what's going to happen in some of these settings. I think there'll be lots of people in the world who will be worried. But I think what really is important that we come together as a community, um, not physically, but uh, in terms of socially and finding that um, solidarity, I think, that people are talking about supporting each other, um, being kind, but being strong and being alert and playing our individual role in minimizing the spread of the outbreak will be really important. I think people need to be alert, but keeping calm and supporting each other will be really important. Checking in on friends, checking in on um, family members to say, how are you? Because we know that as people begin to self-isolate or even stay at home, um, it can be quite isolating and lonely for some people. So providing this mental health um, support and checking in on people, um, coming together as a community will be really important, I think, and we are likely to see the increase in cases, but I think being kind and being calm um, is probably what we can tell all of ourselves as well, and I tell, even as an epidemiologist, I tell myself and remind myself to do that. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just had an interview with epidemiologist Dr Mary Scheel about the public health implications of COVID-19 and how we can best support each other in this time. Next, we'll hear from Sally McManus, Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, about the impact of the pandemic on casual workers and unemployed people. My name's Sally McManus and I'm the Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions. Thanks for joining us on the program today, Sally. So casual workers are currently very concerned about their income. Um, Hospitality, music and arts and entertainment sectors have all been impacted and many people are already out of work. So what is the ACTU pushing for to support these workers? Well, the problem is at the moment is that our laws mean that if you're a casual worker, you don't get any sick pay or, and you don't get support if you need to stay at home uh, if you've got symptoms and before you get the test or you wait for the results um, of the coronavirus. And that's the same for gig economy workers as well. So this is obviously a big concern for, um, for all those workers. And so what we're saying to the government is that they need to step in because if they don't, a whole lot of casual workers and gig workers will keep working even if they've got symptoms. And that's obviously really bad for them, but it's bad because we're trying to flatten the curve. We're trying to stop the spread of the virus. So we need all workers to stay at home if they're sick. Um, But obviously, if you think that you're going to stay at home and lose all your income, that's a big disincentive to do that. And a lot of people will just soldier on. It's really a rock and a hard place in that kind of situation. And it's also not just casual workers. Um, Unemployed people are also being negatively impacted, for example, with job centre appointments and work for the dole obligations. Is the ACTU looking at supporting people in that situation also? Well, we're a union movement, so we represent our members and their people in work. But that doesn't mean we don't have a policy position and we don't advocate um, for unemployed workers because, of course, you know, unemployed people are part of the working class as well. 
so it, we've been um, supporting the call for a very long time for obviously lifting new start. It's um, you know, absolutely unacceptably low. And, you know, during this particular um, crisis that we're all going through, including the Centrelink workers and those call centres, I don't know how they're going to continue to operate, how they currently are. You know, we should be suspending obligations and we should be, um, uh, you know, waiting periods as well because, you know, obviously this is a time of stress for everyone and that uh, we just can't afford to have anything in the way of making sure that all people are supported at this time. You mentioned our legal situation with regard to casual work. I mean, do you think this kind of event points to the unsustainability of casual work more broadly? I mean, if we could change anything permanently from this situation, what what should we be aiming for? Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. Um, Australia's got the third highest rate of insecure work out of all of the developed countries in the world. And like we're way out there uh, in terms of the, the average. So... It's around 40% of people in Australia that don't have any leave entitlements or uh, are on these contracts where they might actually have 10 hours but, you know, they end up working 30 and then they get dropped down all the time. So um, that's meant that basically risk has been shifted from a company or an employer onto the individual. And when it was on the company, it wasn't all on the company. So, you know, if you're sick, obviously you take sick leave, but at a certain point it could be shared between the two. Um, But now it's all on the individual if you're in insecure work. And so, unfortunately, this pandemic is bringing home the real-life consequences on a mass scale of what that means. It means that, um, you know, if all of a sudden there's a big downturn in business or if there's, you know, a, a health crisis like this, that casual workers and gig economy workers are left to fend for themselves, like it's a consequence of 30 years of neoliberalism. So one of the key things we've got to do um, on the other side of this is to address that number of insecure jobs. We've got to reduce it, even if we reduced it down to the average of the other countries, like we should aim to, we should aim to that, around 20% of workers rather than 40%. That will make a massive difference to the living standards of everyone. And if we were ever in this position again, um, we know so many more people would have security and there'd be less people who needed to be supported. So Australia has doubled the average of insecure workers at 40%. That's right. That's right. The average is a bit more than 20%. That seems extremely high. It is. It's extremely high. That does include... Um, people that are permanent part-time workers but might have a contract that says, you know, you're guaranteed 10 hours a week, but in reality, you don't know how many hours it's going to be. Um, but that's not a huge amount of the um, of the overall picture. Remember, for casual workers, it's about 26%, and then you've got all the gig workers as well on top of that too. So it seems like this will have a very broad economic impact and the economic impact of this situation is still unfolding. Do you have any concerns about the unevenness of that impact? For example, we know that women already perform the vast majority of unpaid caring and domestic work if people are staying home and are also overrepresented in the healthcare and social sectors, for example, as nurses and aged care workers. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the biggest... You know, irony out of all of this, it's women that are now being depended on on all levels to be the frontline response to the virus. So as you say, the healthcare industry is highly feminised in our country. 
um, the community sector, which is obviously still um, operating and will be the front line because we're talking about homeless services and you know, disability support services, highly feminised. Looking at schools at the moment, highly feminised. And you look at some of the reasons why they won't close schools because they know that um, we'll be in a situation it's the same for healthcare about who's going to look after the children. Well, some expectation that you know, the woman will look after the children. Not everyone's in a relationship with a with a bloke, but or in a relationship. But um, you know, this is like the compounding problem. So, um, you know, there should be a whole lot of responses to this from the government. For example, um, if they did close schools, uh, or they need more people in um, healthcare to keep them in work. Uh, a whole lot of parents will pull their kids out of childcare anyway. Um, well, there's going to be more spaces, like so perhaps free up spaces for healthcare workers. Um, other countries have done other things to support those workers too. And the other thing is, is um, you know, where your partner's a bloke, well, he can be the hero and um, look after the kids during this time while, while um, women are man the front lines of dealing with the pandemic. What are the best things people can do if they are a casual worker and they have lost their source of income? Well, um, if they've lost a source of income, it's, they need to get behind the push that we're all pushing and there's nearly 100,000 signatures on a petition to the government to um, grant all workers two weeks paid leave. That's not going to cover everything, but it's going to cover something. Um, that's a large petition in Australia and it's getting bigger and bigger every day. And the reason why that's urgent is the Parliament's coming back and if, if that's the one point we've got for them to pass those measures uh, that would give casual workers some bumper and then you know the other thing to do is for us all to push for an increase to new start um, and to and to you know waive the requirements that are currently there uh, and then of course um, after we get through this which we will you know we all need to campaign to reduce the number of insecure jobs so join your union. Never a better time to join a union. Yeah. Um, if people want to find further information or perhaps the petition, where's the best place for them to go? Well, we've set up um, a part of the ACTU's website, so that's um, actu.org.au. You won't miss it. There's a big sign there about um, corona updates. And there's one section of it that's like a one place you can go to get all the information about workers' rights. And um, the coronavirus, in there you'll also find a petition, you'll also find regular health and safety updates, what it all means. You'll also see um, you know, what are your actual rights at work at this time. That was Sally McManus, Secretary of the ACTU, speaking about the impact of COVID-19 on casual workers and unemployed people. Before that, we had an interview with epidemiologist Dr Mary Scheel about the public health implications of COVID-19 and how we can work towards solidarity in community and global health at this time. Take care out there. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio National Women's Current Affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 8377. If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. 
I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time. Thank you.